Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, friends. Welcome to the Our Resolute Hope podcast. Once again, I'm John Russin, and I'm here with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman. My friend, it's a good thing to see you and hear your voice today. How are you? Oh, it is indeed a good thing. Uh, yeah, I think of Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one. We were made for community. Indeed, and it's indeed. Joy to share that community with you. Well, friends, if you've been with us on our most recent podcasts, You've known that we have changed our focus slightly, and we're doing a little more in personal interaction. We're calling this a series on journeys and stories. And basically, we're taking some deeper looks into the lives of Christians, their experiences, and the circumstances that drew them to Jesus Christ as Savior, and then to Jesus Christ as life. The first few weeks, it was my turn on the hot seat. We're going to turn things around and put Pastor Frank on the hot seat today. So, Friedman, I hope you're ready. (laughs) I will try to be Frank. (laughs) Oh, there you go. I want to begin by taking a little bit of a soapbox because, uh, listeners, if you've been with us, you'll hear Frank and me say routinely that uh, our past is something that we can't change but that God can use. And in praying through and getting ready to do these podcasts, I've also been working on a commentary on Galatians, a practical commentary. And I've reached the point in chapter one where Paul is talking about how it pleased God to save Paul. And it takes just a moment to reflect on exactly what a bad guy Paul was. But God knew Paul's past, his family's past. He knew his failure. He knew his reputation. He knew his fleshly tendencies. He knew every one of his sinful acts, and he knew every one of his sinful thoughts. And God chose him anyway. So, Frank, whatever you tell me today, I will look at it not as a past that you must overcome, but as bricks in a foundation that Father has built in your life to make you the man of God you are today. So with that, uh, let's begin. You were raised in Southern California, my friend. You've talked about that a lot over the years. Tell us a little bit about your developmental years and how they shaped you as you were entering adulthood. Yes, sir, I'll try to do that briefly. Um, We grew up very rural. At first, uh, we were in a town of about 500 people. I had to bus uh, 45 minutes plus to school. Uh, It was very much what I would call uh, country. Uh, My wife would say, hick. I tell her there's a major difference. She doesn't get that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) At about uh, the age of 13, my father took a 
big promotion and we ended up in the city of Los Angeles and him a corporate mucky muck vice president of a major mining corporation. And so we were thrust from Mayberry RFD uh, into very much a uh, hard charging city environment. I can remember the first day coming home from school, my junior high had 3,500 kids in it. And I walked in the door and said, mom, get the keys. We're going shopping. Uh, you are never cutting my hair again. Uh, she said, what happened? I said, well, I was called Opie Taylor, Mayberry, Andy <laughs> Griffith. Um, talk about being um, a sore thumb, sticking out. And boy, when you stick out like that in a culture, especially as a young man, uh, it was not fun by any means. Uh, you know, I, I've come to understand over the years, John, that you know, perhaps the greatest fear we all face as human beings is the fear of rejection. You know, the very first thing Adam and Eve did, I'll ask that question. What's the first thing Adam and Eve did after they fell? And people said they hid from God. And I said, no, 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 read your Bible. They put on fig leaves and hid from each other. And I think they, we've been hiding ever since. And to put in an environment where I couldn't hide, uh, it was not good by any means, uh, I, I, hard to find acceptance. So that's kind of the circumstance. In terms of the family environment, uh, I don't wanna paint a, a, an incomplete picture. Uh, we had really good times, good memories, large family, uh, seven kids plus a, a stepbrother later, but uh, my dad was uh, a very hard man. He was raised in the Bronx of New York City, a uh, very tough neighborhood with an abusive father, and that abuse got passed on. So we had uh, verbal abuse, physical abuse. Um, I can remember as a young man coming home, seeing his car and saying, oh, crap, the bastard's home. Um, so it was a home where you kind of knew you were loved. Uh, they were your mom and dad. They had to love you. Uh, but you didn't know you were accepted. And then it was a very religious home in terms of you had to go to church and had to go to catechism, you know, religious training. Uh, but there were no prayer before meals, even the acknowledgement of God. Uh, there wasn't a leading to the face of God. So in this environment, you feel very much alone. Uh, you feel like you don't measure up. Uh, you feel like there's something wrong with you. Uh, God was somebody that you couldn't get close to and you were afraid of him. And so you entered into life wearing a lot of mask, uh, pretending to be what you weren't in order to protect your heart. And uh, because the thought process was, there isn't a person in the world that understands what I'm going through and how 
fearful I really am. I presented a persona of strength, kind of like a turtle, hard shell on the outside, but inside a, a bunch of mush, uh, screaming for belonging. You know, my friend, listening to so many people's stories as we have over the years, while the specific details of their circumstances vary all over the place, there are so many common themes mm-hmm. in the lives of everyone. Performance, unacceptance, searching for identity, feeling like we don't fit. And so these, I think, are, are uniform in all mankind. And they craft a hole in us, a void, a need that God wants to fill. But sometimes we choose that there might be a plan B that would be more acceptable. Now, you had a very cold relationship with God as I did growing up. But eventually, he grabbed you by the scruff of the neck, shook the dust off and said, come here, son, we have some business. And so how did that happen? When uh, in your life did you really come face to face with Jesus? What led you to say, yes, sir? Well, that's a great question, John. You know, I really believe in my heart that, uh, you know, Romans 2 says the goodness of God leads people to repentance. And I think that very often that's true. But I think that the major way people come to faith is born out of necessity. Um, That I I was not going to see God as a reality until I saw him as a necessity. And so the circumstances behind that are not fun by any means, Um, but I'll take the opportunity to share this and I can do it now without crying. I used not to not be able to do so. There was an occasion when I was about 13 years old where my father was uh, hitting my sister and I was upstairs and hearing the screams and the shouts as my mother was desperately trying to stop him. And as a 13 year old kid, in my mind, I said, that's enough, it's got to stop. So I loaded my best arrow into my best bow, snuck down the stairs. He had her up against the wall with his fist raised and I, drew back and aimed at the center of his back to uh, put an end to this. And for some reason, I believe it's the spirit of God, he let go of her and put her down. And so I untethered my arrow and slunk back upstairs. And my mom in her desperation to stop what had been going on said, your son was just going to kill you. And so this very big man, very tough man, came tearing up the stairs, grabbed me by the shirt, hoisted me into the air, raised his fist. And in my thought process was, okay, now I'm going to die. And then he put me down, fell to his knees and cried like a baby. And when he had gained some semblance of recovery. And I was just standing there in shock. He 
looked up at me and said, I am so sorry. I have been doing to you kids what was done to me. And if you'll give me a second chance, I will try so hard um, to change. And so I gave him a second chance. And over the next six years, he became what would probably be my best friend. And then at the age of 19, he came home from church and he was nauseous and sick and throwing up in the gutter. And he came in and he said, I think I have the flu. And a few hours later, he headed off to the hospital and said, I gotta go get a flu shot or something. And he went into a coma that night. The doctor called at about two in the morning and said, uh, your dad has had a massive cerebral hemorrhage and I don't believe he'll be surviving the night. Now, the extenuating circumstance at that time, John, was that the doctors in Los Angeles were on strike because of the malpractice rates that they were experiencing. And so the only docs that were in service were the emergency doctors. And they would not, the neurosurgeons would not come into the hospital to treat him. So I got to the hospital that next morning. Uh, he was still alive and I sought what to do. And so I began to call all over the city of Los Angeles to neurosurgeons to see if I could find someone to come in. And about four o'clock, I finally found a doctor. He said, I'll be there as soon as I'm done with this next patient. I ran to the hospital and said, I found a neurosurgeon that'll come. And the ER doc said, well, who is it? And I told him and he shook his head and he said, I'm sorry, he's not affiliated with our hospital. And so at 19, with, with a lot of pent up rage from growing up the way I did, and now losing my best friend because a doctor would not come in, I stood up and uh, I looked at that ER doc and I said, sir, you've got about five minutes to pull whatever red tape you need to pull to get him here. Or I'm going to start tearing this place apart and I'm going to begin with you. And he got up and ran out and uh, I thought, sure, he was calling security, but he, he came back in five minutes and said he can come. That He got there about 6.30 and said, I'm sorry, it's too late. And I said, could he have survived if the doctors were here? And he said, son, will never. I said, sir, could he have survived? And he said, well, of course there was a chance. So the anger, uh, the rage, growing up without a dad and then finally getting a dad and then having him ripped from you at a tender age of 19, I, uh, I just went into the world. I was angry. I put a crust around my heart. Uh, I used people, I took advantage of people, I sought to propel my own self through athletics, and uh, just kind of became a very ugly person, and uh, did things that, uh, you know, I would, I'm not proud of, and in college, there was this one girl 
Her name was Mindy. And she began, she was different. Oh, she was different. She just had a peace and a joy. And so I asked her and she said, I'm a Christian. And I said, don't give me that crap. And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm really, I'm a Christian. And so she would begin to share with me. And I found out later that the elder, one of the elders of her church told her to stay away from me because I was uh, not a good person. And Mindy was tenacious. She said, no, his heart is searching and I'm not going to stop. So uh, she brought me to church. And uh, that night I received the Lord Jesus as my savior. And uh, I knew I was, my sins were forgiven and I knew I was going to heaven. But uh, boy, did I have a lot of baggage. <laughs> yes, don't we all? Uh, that's kind of why I began with the uh, reference to Paul in Galatians uh, that I did, because Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the premier, the foremost, the top dog of sinners. And listening to you and knowing you as I do, and listening to my own life and knowing me as I know myself, sometimes I wonder whether I couldn't compete with him. <laughs> You couldn't <laughs> compete with him for that title. <clears throat> but God stepped in, grabbed Paul by the scruff of the neck, shook off the dust and got started. And he did the same with you. So when he began to get started in your life, my friend, what was the first thing you began to notice was different? How did your conversion initially impact your life? Well, it was interesting, John, um, uh, without even trying, the desire to do a lot of what I had been doing stopped immediately. Um, it was weird. It was just like, I just didn't want to do those things. And I found myself instead wanting to uh, please God with all my heart. And I kept all my old friends, uh, but I wasn't participating in what they were doing. So I would be with them, but not do those things. And so they began to make fun of me and tell me I was in a phase that I would be back. Well, it's been a 40 year phase, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but eventually uh, it was a bit of rejection because they didn't want to be around me anymore. Um, and so I, I kind of had to, gravitate to the church because I didn't have anybody else. So I uh, began to go to Bible studies and establish different friendships. Now, some of those older friendships I've kept to this day. And uh, some of them have come to Christ, which is wonderful. Some of them have not. Uh, but we, we maintain a relationship, which is really wonderful. I pray for them that one day they will. But that's kind of the initial, just it was a radical 180 without even trying. There was a circumstance in my own life, not too dissimilar from what you just described. I had a close friend throughout high school and throughout my university years. And I became a Christian as a fourth year senior at the university. And I came back to my home for some break or some holiday. I happened to see this friend and I said, well, I become a Christian now. And she put her hands on her hips 
And the, with the most disgusted look I could imagine, she said, oh God, not you too. And that was the last time I saw her. She asked me to leave. That was it. And so I understand that when God closes doors, uh, God leads us into canyons sometimes, and there's only one way out. Uh, frankly, I'm really excited that he did that for you because it shepherds you nicely into a direction that he wanted to take you. So thank you, Father, for uh, interrupting the path of my friend and leading him in the direction you wanted to take him. I'm very grateful for that. So what came next, my friend? Okay, you stopped the desire to sin at least a lot of the time, or at least some of the things <laughs> that you used to like to do. And you started going to church, started going to Bible studies, but you know as well as I do, and many of our listeners do too, that when you first get started as a Christian, sometimes there's just a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of naivety. There's a lot of just spiritual ignorance. Uh, and we kind of bumble through things uh, for some years before we begin to mature. So give us a few insights into those early years of your walk of faith. Which circumstances can you share that might have been influential in your maturation? Were there watershed moments? Uh, what steered you, uh, especially since you wound up becoming a pastor? How on earth did you get that preacher hook in you? Hmm. Well, that's a great question, John. It's, I think it'll be kind of fun to answer in a way. You know, when you find life, when you've lived in death, uh, you know, when you find acceptance, when you've lived in rejection, um, there's a great desire to share what you have. And so I became a, a, an evangelist almost immediately, just sharing with everybody I could. But I really didn't do it um, very well in some instances. Yes, uh, I know I, the feeling. <laughs> I mean, I, I led a lot of people to Christ immediately, but there were others that was a different story. For, I'll share this one. It was hilarious. Uh, I had been raised Catholic. And so, um, and I, I'm not Catholic bashing here. I just want to share this story. Uh, there was a uh, co-ed softball class that I participated in and I was playing second base. A little girl was in right field and I ran out to chase the ball and she ran in to chase the ball and I uh, picked it up through the infield and I looked at her and she had a crucifix around her neck. And I said, what's that? And she says, that's my crucifix. And I said, oh, are you a Christian? And she said, no, I'm Catholic. And I said, oh, that's too bad. And I, Ooh. <laughs> and I went back to play at co-ed. Well, as part of my football scholarship, I had a job on campus. And lo and behold, about an hour later, she shows up at my job uh, like a matter in a wet hand. What did you mean that's too bad that I'm Catholic? So I opened up the Bible and shared with her the little bit of information I knew. And within about 20 minutes was leading her to Christ. And I thought to myself, boy, this being bold really works. So about a week later, there was a girl trucking down the hall and she had a crucifix. And I said, what's that around your neck? She says, my crucifix. And I said, oh, are you a Christian? And she said, no, I'm a Catholic. And I said, oh, that's too bad. Well, I didn't see her again. Well, <laughs> about three years later, I'm at church, big church, three, 4,000 people in attendance. And I look at the prayer room and guess who's coming out of the prayer room? That girl. And she's got tears streaming down her cheeks. And so I'm kind of thinking, 
she might have just found Christ. So I go walking down there and I said, hey, do you remember me? And she said, yes, I do. And I said, well, what's going on? And she said, well, I just became a Christian. And I said, wow, three years after I talked to you. And she said, yeah, you're one of the reasons it took three more years. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I learned quickly that uh, when you share Christ, it's got to be led by the Holy Spirit, not by a method. Yes, so much for formulas, bro. So much for formulas. <laughs> Uh, the other that I think is really important, John, is to make a little bit of address towards my athletic career. Um, you know, I'm very much one of the smaller kids in school, uh, but about the age of 13, found that I could run really fast and, and kick a ball really far. And so I pursued soccer. I went to the Olympic trials, made it to the quarters, uh, went in football and uh, placed fifth in the nation as a sophomore, led the nation as a senior, third in the nation as a junior. And the anticipation was that I would go into pro ball as a uh, place kicker. So I was with my agent uh, about a week before draft day. And I said, what, do you, what round do you think I'm gonna go in? And he called Gil Brandt right there in my presence, who was the director of player personnel for the Dallas Cowboys. And he said, hey, I'm sitting here with Frank Friedman. When do you have him going? And Gilbrandt said, oh, he'll go in the six to 12th rounds. Well, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 went by and I didn't get drafted. So he said, uh, that's no big deal. You'll get a free agent contract in a matter of a, a week or two. Well, nothing came. And so I began to have that childhood sense again of failure and rejection and shame. And so many camps were starting up in June and my back was against the wall and newspaper articles began to come out. What happened to Friedman? How come Friedman didn't get a contract? And that just added to the shame. So I uh, went to a church service, a bunch of baptisms. I saw the lives transformed and I made it publicly that night. I'm going into the ministry. The very next day, a team called with a contract offer. <laughs> <laughs> so now I've either got to honor my word or retract it and look pretty stupid. So I went to seminary and I had no money. Um, I'm, we had gone to poverty since my dad had died. Um, I had a broken down car, couldn't have the money to fix it. I failed my first theology exam. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a 10 month old Christian and uh, I was actually hitchhiking to seminary and another pro team called in October and they said, we're flying in three guys and one of you will be in the game on Sunday. Called my pastor and I said, what do I do? And he said, you'll do what's right. And a young kid takes that as, yep, I'll serve God. So yeah, turn not, not the best answer. No, I, I've learned now that's not the answer I'm going to give. My answer is going to be, where's your heart? Um, but I did it. And so I went through school. And then when I graduated, I sent out 150 resumes. And most of them came back and said, you're too young to be a pastor. So a friend of mine called and said they were starting a new football league called the USFL. So I 
went to a tryout up in Reno and I made 11 out of 12 field goals inside 50 yards. And the scout looked at me and he said, Freeman, I remember you. Where have you been for three years? And I said, I've been in seminary learning God's word. And he wasn't pleased with that answer. And he said, back him up. So we backed up to 55 and I hit two out of three and hit the top of the upright on the third. And he said, here, sign a contract. So I went to the USFL, to the Arizona Wranglers down in your neck of the woods. And uh, it was a week at camp, made every single field goal. And just before practice in the locker room, who's those heard those dreaded words, Friedman, coach wants to see you bring your playbook. Uh oh! <laughs> so I went in there and he says, you know, you're really good, but that kid over there is 22 and you're 27. Now we're going to go with the youth. So I had football telling me I was too old and churches telling me I was too young. <laughs> and so I basically had contracts lined up the tryouts lined up the next spring and I continued to send resumes and I finally found a church that would take me with 13 adults and seven kids, probably the only church that would take me. So I said no to the tryouts and went into the ministry. Now, John, here's the key. For the next several years, I used that. Uh, the church loves that kind of stuff. He turned down pro football to go into seminary. And they love to hear the story. And I love to tell the story. And then about seven years later, I was putting a closet organizer in for Janet and the Holy Spirit had one of those conversations where he whispers in your ear, do you know why you turned down pro football? I said, yes, sir, to serve you. And he said, well, that's part of the motive. You were afraid of failing after all the publicity. And it was easier to not try than to fail. And that was like a punch in the gut. And I was on my knees in tears because it was the truth. And I'll never forget, Janet came up, saw me crying, and she said, did you hit your thumb with a hammer? And I said, no, the Holy Spirit just sucked me in the gut. <laughs> <laughs> and then he proceeded very gently over the next several months to show me several other motives. I was afraid of what my pastor would think. I was afraid of what the church would think. My gift to teach had been confirmed by the body of Christ. I felt like I had to pay God back for saving me. And with a baby on the way now, I needed something that would provide security financially and not the riskiness of a pro football career where you can get cut at any time. And so um, now I try to be honest about that story. <laughs> but those are probably the two pivotal moments. Those are, those are rich. Those are revealing. They're rewarding. And my friend, they are gut honest. You turned on a pro ball for Jesus. Paul turned away from Phariseeism for Jesus. He too left his whole world. And so it's just amazing how father could step in grab people such as you, such as I, shake the dust off, put them on their feet and point them in a direction because you had great ideas, great thoughts, great plans. I've heard you say, boy, what would I be doing these days if I had signed on with that team? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be calling you up and asking you for contributions. <laughs> 
but you know, Father has good things, better things, best things planned for us, things that we don't even think about most of the time. And it'd be nice to say, yes, sir, I trust you and follow along. But most of the time, he has to box us in and lead us, sometimes rather forcefully, like he did with you, uh, mm -hmm. to get us to a place where he can reveal his son. Yes, sir. And so it's, uh, it, it's an amazing journey. We're going to continue this, Frank. So don't forget your train of thought. We're going to continue this in our next podcast. And we're going to pick up uh, at the point where you built your church. By then, the most important thing has happened in your life. You've met me. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, and, and Father says, okay, my son, it's time to go a little deeper. And let me show you a little bit more about what Jesus did for you and means to you. So we're going to pick it up right there next time. So friends, come back. Join us again in, in a week or so uh, at our, the Our Resolute Hope podcast. Don't forget to check us out. Please do so on our website, OurResoluteHope.com. We've got a bunch of stuff. It gets bigger every day uh, that can help you. Follow us on our various social media platforms. But most importantly, no matter what happens today, choose hope, choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, he offers you himself, his own life. He wants to live his life with you, in you, and through you as you trust him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.